This is the Aurelius Podcast, episode 51 with Timothy Bardlevins. I'm Zach Naylor, co-founder at Aurelius and your host for the Aurelius Podcast, where we discuss all things UX, research, and product. In this episode, we have Timothy Bardlevins, a product design manager at Facebook. He's a product design leader and diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist involved in organizational culture. Timothy is also a co-founder of And Design, whose mission is to cultivate and activate Black, Latinx, and Indigenous designers by providing tools, resources, and training to support them on their creative journey. Timothy and I had a very deep conversation about diversity and inclusion in the world of design and UX, particularly in tech companies and culture. It's very clear he's an expert and deep thinker about how we can create a more equitable work culture and world in general. This conversation is so important for several reasons. First, Timothy has firsthand experience, real lived experience, and how the systems in our work and personal lives do not inherently support the equality of all people. In addition to that, Timothy has clearly given a lot of thought and application to exactly how we can all work to make our society better for all people, and it includes all of us. I sincerely hope you enjoy this episode and take away some things to consider and act on. The Aurelius Podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the powerful research repository and insights platform. Aurelius is an all-in-one space for researchers to organize notes, capture insights, analyze data, and share outcomes with your team. We recently announced two of our biggest features yet. Aurelius now offers transcriptions and our automatic report builder. You can add any audio or video recording and have notes created for you automatically. Then Aurelius automatically creates a report with every key insight and recommendation from your project, which you can then edit, design, and share with anyone right from Aurelius. Check us out at AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. All right, let's get to it. Hey, Timothy. Hey. How's it going? It's going good, man. Living these COVID times. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Your response, the sigh <laughs> that came before your response <laughs> said more than anything in, in the actual answer to that question, which I think all <laughs> of us can probably relate to right now, right? But, you know, at the time of recording this, actually, funny enough, it's April Fool's Day, so that's funny. But folks will be listening to this after the fact. I mean, things are kind of picking up, you know, more more folks getting vaccinated, weather's starting to turn, although uh, where you and I live, that can be <laughs> deceptive as we kind of chatted mm -hmm. about before we got into it. Well, none of those things are nearly as important as, uh, as hearing from you, which is the whole reason we've got you on the show. And I appreciate you coming on and taking the time. I was wondering, can you introduce yourself, you know, let people know, you know some of the work that you do, your background, what you're passionate about, stuff like that? Yeah, sure. So I always start with, well, one, my name, of course, I'm Timothy Bard Levins. So yeah, I always start with, I'm, the, I'm a Black gay man from the South. And that's important to me because when I'm from the South, and there's a lot of misconceptions and notions, I actually was just having a conversation with someone this morning, and they're from, they actually grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I live here now. They live in Atlanta, and they're like, man racism is so in your face here. And I was like, yeah, I appreciate it because I know where I can find it. It's not this passive aggressive shit we have up here in PNW. So um, <laughs> that's the thing. But no, I, I make that introduction because it's, and I even do this in job interviews. It's, it's really a thing of like, it's who I am. It's the collection of my experiences. It's what, um, it's the lens through which I see life. Um, it's how I navigate space. It's how I have to navigate systems, this country, all the things. And so um, I always start with those as like the core of my identity and who I am. And so outside of that, I am a product design leader. I am diversity, equity, inclusion specialist. I am deeply involved in organizational culture and how we do it effectively and all the things. I, I think that I probably do way too much in life. I'm also 
co-founder of a company and a fellowship with the great and illustrious Lieutenant Carroll, who is also one of my best friends. So we founded and designed together. It's an amazing company, but it started as a fellowship program where we focus on emerging creatives, Black, Latinx, and Indigenous folks who just need additional access to people, to mentorship, to growth opportunities, to all the things we never uh, had access to when we were growing up because of you know having a lack of role models or lack of access to the people who could give us the insider or just have the vocabulary to understand what many of us, especially within that group of Latinx and Indigenous folks, what we have to navigate on a day-to-day basis. So yeah, that's me. As far as like work, I work at Facebook right now. I am a product design manager, a leader pillar within our communities group. So communities is basically the whole, is the shift that Facebook is making towards, like across the company, like it used to be about friends and family. And that's like, how do we help people build community on and off the platform? And so I do a ton of work there when it is centered around community, as well as helping drive a bunch of the racial equity work that we're doing to say, like, how do we make sure we're building our products more equitably, both retroactively and proactively? So ton of work. I'm always busy. I work Sunday through Friday, and I try to make sure I take Saturdays off all the time. I hope so. I was going to say, I feel like uh, I hope you've got something that you enjoy that is not actively working because everybody needs that regardless of how passionate we are. And that's pretty impressive, all the stuff that you've got going on, which is one of the reasons, of course, I wanted to reach out to you because a lot of the things that you're passionate about and experienced in and have expertise and background in, I think are really relevant to kind of boost the signal on, right? And and discuss these things. And I came across the one talk, I mentioned this when I reached out to you, uh, that you gave, and it was called Navigating Whiteness. And so, you know, of course, the title, I think immediately catches somebody's attention, regardless of your curiosities. But then, you know, watching that, it was really profound, especially some of the experiences you shared and kind of here, here's what this looks like. And here's what we do about that. And obviously something I kind of wanted to dig in with you on that. And so I'll ask a question, which seems like kind of a stupid one, but it's a good segue is like, what sparked that for you, right? To, to kind of give that talk. Now, obviously your background, I think is, is the case. How did you for, get to the point where you say, this is a talk I want to give, like, I want to share these experiences, you know? Yeah. Well, a couple of things. One, you know, I will say that sort of to what you said earlier around say, making space for myself. One thing I, I made a decision on very early in life is I'll never do anything that I'm not, that I'm not passionate about. I'll never do work just to like fund a passion. And so like everything I do, even with my job is my hobby. And so that means that I get fulfillment out of it regardless. And so when I take a break, it's really a meaningful break just to say, I just want to chill out and do nothing. But it was like, hey, what are your hobbies? It's design, it's leading, it's diversity, equity, inclusion, it's writing, it's all these things. It's just a culmination of, of who I am and what, I'm, what I really enjoy doing. But to the, your question where it sparked, I'll be transparent and say that part of it was, well, the, the talk itself, which has now become a two-part article, actually technically it's going to be a three-part article, is I was asked to speak to students at SBA for their products of design uh, program. I think it's a master's program. And so I'd completely forgotten about it until the day of, for the most part, or maybe a couple a day before. And I was like, shoot, I have to figure out what to speak about. And I had these ideas rattling in my brain before quite some time, but I was like, eventually I'll get to writing something down. And all those people who honestly believe I may have ADHD or some form, like some yeah, form of it where like I'll procrastinate like hell, but at some point if there's a deadline and I have to get to it, then all of a sudden I hyper-focus and I get into this zone and I can like crank out some shit. And so 
that talk that you saw was really about three hours of me writing five pages of like all the things that are in my brain and how to like really articulate it. And so I think that was sort of the, the impetus of it. But in actuality, you know, as I've broken it out into these now two parts, like one part has already been released. I'm fine. I'm, I'm working on editing for the second part. It's like I had a realization that a lot of these thoughts are a culmination of my experiences and the things and the vocabulary that I've developed over the past decade. Like there are things where at first it started with me of like, these are things I experienced and I didn't know at first how to call it a thing. And then I figured out, oh, what is the thing that I call it? And what's the vocabulary around that? And then over time, I started to see how these micro um, experiences for myself connected to macro experiences that connected to systems that connected to this concept. It's not really a concept, this realization and existence of whiteness. And, there, and then it's really like, well, how do we define what that is? I mean, how do we get people to dis, like disconnect when they think about white supremacy? How do you get them to disconnect it from hoods, people hanging from trees, things like that? And to say, well, actually, white supremacy is in all, almost everything we do. And we just don't understand that it exists. And we have internalized whiteness as a society because who have our leaders been? Who has been in Congress and in, in government and in power the most in this country? White people, specifically white men. And so we think about whiteness and all the innovations that exist that are many times credited to white men, even if they don't deserve it. Then what happens is there's a whole society and really the whole world is sort of indoctrinated to this. And now it's like, how do we go through dismantling all that indoctrination? Because it's, because it's centuries of it, right? It starts with colonialism and goes all the way until today. I mean, even before colonialism, really. And so, yeah, it's it's just like, a culmination of thoughts. Yeah. And really life experience for you too. It sounds like, yeah. you know, <laughs> I actually kind of really like the story, how that came up though, because it's, uh, it reminds me of this thing, a, a former colleague shared one time, it was like the timeline of a design project. Let's say it's a week. And it's like the first four days are like screwing off, screwing off, screwing off, screwing off. Mm-hmm. Day four is like, oh shit. Day five is like crunch to do all the work in the five hours mm-hmm. before the meeting. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's just, I think that's how a lot of like, creative people work. I think a lot of people in general, maybe just like that, but Mm -hmm. I've, I've found like just kind of our industry. It's like, it's just a lot of thinking and churning on stuff. And then you're like, I'm ready to put hammer to nail kind of thing. So it kind of makes sense to me. I really appreciate you sharing too, how you came to that. I kind of want to tie it back to something that you mentioned, you know, being from the South and now in Pacific Northwest and saying, uh, I appreciate knowing where the cards are on the table rather than this passive aggressive bullshit. I think ha- some of that you tell me, but I'm tying it back to that because I feel like some of that is not recognizing, as you would say, whiteness or like not not being able to actually define what that is and see it because we're so sort of saturated by it. Just not. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. In Seattle, I live in a neighborhood where I live across the street from a, a Japanese community center while they're sort of gentrifying everything around them. And there's two buildings that are on the other side of my block that they, I think they're sort of being supported by or paid for by a different, like a nonprofit organization, just to allow elderly Asian folks to have a place to live. And these are mainly folks who are likely immigrants who came over, whose children have like gone off and are doing different things, whether it's across Seattle or across the country. But then I also live in a space where like right up on the other side of my block, there's a Buddhist temple that used to, that was we started as a Buddhist temple, was turned into a Japanese internment camp, and then turned back into a Buddhist temple. They were given it back by the government to be able to use it as a temple again, right? And so, like, it's a really interesting space to be in here because you have this 
really tough history that exists within a neighborhood. No, like the Central District used to be a black, a very black neighborhood. And there's a Langston Hughes Community Center that's right up the road. But the funny thing is like the Langston Hughes Community Center is surrounded by whiteness because it's been gentrified so deeply to help people live closer to the city where they work that aren't the people of the community. And so like, it's just like, I don't know, it's just an interesting thing to sort of like think about and navigate through. And Seattle like is a perfect work. In fact, I remember, I think there was an article by Mark Lucky who actually said this about Facebook. He said there are more Black Lives Matters posters in the window than are Black people working at the company. I know that like, I was just saying earlier today, honestly, I was, I was having a really candid conversation earlier this morning. So obviously these are things I talk about like all the time. But I was talking to someone earlier, I was like, you know, the funny thing about Seattle and other places like Seattle, Portland is one, the Bay Area as well. You'll see people with the Black Lives Matter sign in their front porch or their front yard. And at the same time, they'll say, I don't want a bus stop in my neighborhood because bus stops bring crime. And it's like, well, bus stops actually are overwhelmingly used or buses are, or let's say public transit are, are overwhelmingly used by black and brown folks. And so the attribution to crime to bus stops is an attribution of crime to black and brown people. But there's a lack of awareness that there's even a connection there. And that's how people like, that's how those tropes have been used for like decades. And they're still being used. And people are like, oh, well, no, like I just attribute like, you know, you know, people in crimes. Like, oh, no, poverty in crime. Who are the people who inextricably live in poverty more than anyone else in the country? Black and brown folks. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that lack of recognition in the connection there, I think is, I think is a big deal. And and I'm glad, I'm grateful that there's a lot of folks who are helping push that forward, like yourself, like Antoinette, actually, I'm familiar with her work too. So that's, that's super cool that you kind of mentioned her. But so being that we are in the, the UX, the research product design kind of world, maybe narrowing it in on that. I mean, can you talk about some of the work you do there and, and, and even, you know, how it affects your work and how you have navigated that as that kind of professional? Because that's a lot of the folks who are listening to this. I would, I would argue probably all of the folks listening to our podcast are in that same field. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, so this is actually related to part two of my article and I've been digging in on is I thought about, I've been thinking about this a lot and I had a realization that there are, there's one, a level of understanding people need to have when it comes to systems and how deeply they run. And even, especially if you work in tech, how it connects and sometimes the work you do, you don't even realize it. The second is around frameworks. Many times people are looking for frameworks and there are a lot of equitable design frameworks. There are a lot of co-creation frameworks. There are a lot of frameworks around how do you do more um, equitable research? And yet either people don't access them or they access them, but bastardize them because they're looking for a checkbox or a short list or things they can just quickly do. And I realized in part of the article is really digging in on really the most important thing people need to do is shift their mindset and they need to actually dismantle some of the whiteness that are actually approaching these things with these problems with. So let's start with systems. So an example I use is Cash App and say, so, and that's the question, why does Cash App exist? Their mission is something along the lines of making it so that everyone can have access to their funds. And what is Cash App? You are able to easily send, receive, and store money. Who is it for? Cash App is really for the unbanked and underbanked. Who are folks who are most, most likely to be unbanked or underbanked? Most likely those are Black and Latinx folks or Indigenous folks as well. And if you ask what is unbanked or underbanked, that's people who either don't have bank accounts or they live in neighborhoods where there is not a bank close enough for them to be able to effectively access. Most likely that is going to be lower income neighborhoods. And so then you start to see like, well, 
you know, well, why are these folks unbanked, especially let's focus on that. Well, it could be like, especially there's a lack of trust. There's issues with fees. There's a lot of, there's actually a lot of expense that comes into maintaining a bank account. And let's say, for example, you don't maintain a minimum balance, then you get hit with fees. Let's say that you need to overdraft because you need to pay a bill and you didn't have enough money, then you hit the overdraft fee. And if you don't pay that fast enough, then there may be another overdraft fee, or you may go into negative. If you go into negative and it stays too long, your bank account could be canceled. You could be blackballed from banks. These things happen all the time. I lived in the negative for much of my, I guess, my 20s, like through college and through like my first three or four years out of college, I basically paid, got paid paid bills to put my account to the negative. And I got paid to fill in that negative balance in two weeks just to do it all over again. And so when you start to dig through that, he's like, well, where's there a lack of, why is there a lack of trust in all these issues within it? You, you step back and say, well, there's a lack of trust, especially if you focus in on black people. If you go all the way back to the 1870s, right after emancipation, when they created the Freedmen's Bank and they made it as a way to help build economic wealth and prosperity for black or recently uh, freed enslaved people. And so what happened was the first national bank started, there was this primary white bank. They started taking, buying risky real estate and, and railroads projects, and they would take that risk and put it on Freedman's Bank. And they did it to the point where that bank could no longer recover. Frederick Douglass actually took over the bank for a bit to see if he could help it recover, and he couldn't even get it there. The entire board for the bank, of course, were all white men. So they end up shutting down the bank. And in doing so, it was over 66,000 Black people lost $6 million in, in money because of them shutting down that bank in the 1800s. And so you say, well, why is there like people who like Black folks all the time, they stick money in their, you know, in their mattress or they put it somewhere else. Like they they don't like to put it in, in the bank. And it's because you have the fees, you have this history of like how people have been abused when it comes to the banking system, especially Black and Brown folks. And then it connects to why does cash have exist? Because the system failed someone 300 years ago and it has so hurt a population that now we're having to create patches for it now in 2021 uh, to be able to fix those 300 year problems. And so, like, we use, then that's just the system. And it's supposed to be overwhelming. It's supposed to feel like a lot because you have to realize that this is a lot to have to work through. It's going to take time to navigate it. When you say there are frameworks, there's a lot of them. How do we leverage them? There's some that work really well, but there's a mindset that comes with leveraging a framework and understanding the system, which is, if the innovator's dilemma, right? We want things fast. We have to be first to market. It has to be the best, so on and so forth. White supremacy says quantity over quality is a, is a preset there. Another white supremacist concept is progress over everything, basically, which basically means that like it doesn't matter who you hurt. Progress is what matters. Individualism is also a precept of white supremacy. And so when you say innovation in the way that we use it right now, of like get into a corner, do it ourselves, be first to market, be the best is like we're basically driving white supremacist precepts through the products that we build. So how do we take a step back and say, how do we co-create this? Innovation is really saying like, who are the marginalized people? How do we bring those folks in and co-create with them, understand how we actually solve our problems and work with them on it over it versus the opposite, which is how research goes right now is, for example, we will have people who will come in, they do, let's say an hour study, let's say we do that for 15, 20 people and their research goes out and they coalesce and they synthesize those learnings and they spit them back out. But there's no really gut check to say, did we actually synthesize these appropriately? Do we take these and filter them to our own mindset without actually saying, well, let's gut check and make sure we actually synthesize this in a way that really hits on the key problems to be solved. And that we're actually understanding these individuals' experiences. And then how do we return back to them once we synthesize and started creating something to ensure 
that we have actually met the need versus trying to solve a problem that we as tech or designers or even researchers have created ourselves. And many times we create hypotheses and we want to prove the hypothesis versus actually understanding if we're solving a real human problem. That's like a whole diatribe of things. I can even go, I can go forever, but I'll pause there and say, there's a lot there. It's a mindset shift. And there's a lot of things within it that we have to change. And people have to realize, last thing is, we look at sort of like people problems and these frameworks and things like that and say, if we do it this one way and keep doing it the same way, then we'll get there. In actuality, there's nuance to it. There's a multidimensional approach that we have to take every case by case basis. And then we have to really start to dig in and like, Internet has a talk around being able to like be humble and like being humble is around, I mean, it's not humble. It's, um, Chuck's have to, I have to go back and remember now, but basically the whole thought behind it is you can't just have empathy because if you have empathy, yeah, sure. You feel for a person, but that doesn't mean you actually are taking a back seat and really absorbing and understanding sort of another person's sort of perspective. So it's humility. And so like the quote that she uses that I love that I pulled is like, empathy without humility often shows up as judgment. If empathy doesn't have humility, it's still about you. And that was such an amazing, an amazing thought. And then Emily Rowe Underwood, she's a community initiative specialist for Missouri Historical Society. She says, humility asks us to step outside of ourselves, listen, absorb someone else's truth, even if it makes us feel defensive. That defensiveness many times is white fragility. So anyway, I'll pause there. I've said a lot. <laughs> that, was, that was a lot of really awesome stuff. And I think, I actually, I appreciate that you call out, this feels overwhelming because it should, because, because it's a lot. It's, this isn't something we're gonna, <laughs> I know <laughs> this will probably resonate to you, but this isn't something we're gonna break down in a design sprint. This isn't something we're gonna figure Thank out you. and tackle with a workshop. Like this is something we've got to put as what I'm taking from what you're saying at the forefront of our minds to impact our decisions every single day. It reminded me of a quote too, of somebody we had on the show recently, uh, Alba Villamil. She said, I hope I get this right. She said, the idea of inclusion is interesting to me because a lot of times it doesn't account for the fact or, or like the reason for exclusion in the first place. Mm -hmm. Anyway, a lot of what you were saying sort of that like connected back to what some of the stuff that she was talking about, because that's essentially what it sounds like you're suggesting to folks is like, it's, it's fine to say, we want to be inclusive. We want to empathize with this. We want to be better, but to actually examine you know, in your example, why does Cash App exist? Like, well, yeah, maybe you don't have to trace the full lineage of everything you're doing, but to at least understand the purpose of exclusion or, or the cause of exclusion, you can't really get to that next step, right? Yeah, I think a, a really interesting thing that someone told me is during the murder of George Floyd, when that was still raw, during the murder of Breonna Taylor, when that was still raw, and honestly for me, it was actually for, for George Floyd, it's raw again because of the, the trial. but during the time where everyone sort of was waking up to racism again or suddenly it's this thing she was saying that like a lot of her friends like white friends from high school and college and things like that reached out to her was like i'm so sorry like i didn't know and they were like you know they were so emotional and it's funny because she said she's like i don't know why you're calling me just like i you know i've dealt with this like you're the like you're the one who needs to deal with you and it's sort of this thing where like people start, they tend to wake up to the reason for exclusion, but then they, they want to put the emotional baggage on those who were excluded, as opposed to saying like, hey, this isn't your problem. This is something I need to deal with. I'll take it a step farther and say, you know, I don't believe in, and we've actually, we've had a, a few of us have had a debate about this, but I don't believe there's a such thing as a white ally. Because if you think about it like this, black people 
Asian folks, Latinx folks, indigenous folks, we didn't create racism. So why, why do we need allies from the folks who created racism as opposed to why can't we be the allies to those who are trying to dismantle it? Like the creators can't all of a sudden be like, oh, well, we'll help you and we'll support you. It's like you created this. How can you all of a sudden be the one that like wants to be the savior as well? It just it doesn't make sense. It doesn't track. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective on that. I mean, I don't I don't have any background to the debate that you've had. I mean, I wonder I could see both sides of that for sure. And that's a new perspective to me. I could see on one end. Yeah, hundred percent. What you're saying, because <laughs> it's like, how can you be like, we're gonna help and support that? It was like, well, you can just stop too, right? <laughs> but then, but then on on, on the other side, because that's basically what you're saying, right? I mean, if that's yeah. uh, your side of the argument, I could see on the other side someone saying maybe the definition of an ally being like, well, this is just somebody who is supporting the cause. Um, but I think, yeah, from what I'm taking in. Um, on your side of that debate, it's like, well, at the root, it still comes back to, well, that was where it was created. So I could see, yeah, I could see both sides. Of that. It's an interesting perspective I haven't heard before. Well, think about it like this. So you said like, hey, we're going to support you in the cause. What is the cause? The cause is, uh, let's say, like, just to shorten it, black and brown liberation or whatever the case may be, right? But the cause is in reaction to a system that was created by the folks who are now trying to dismantle. Like the oppressee is trying to dismantle a system that created, that's created by the oppressor. And the oppressor is trying to be an ally in helping the oppressee dismantle it versus the oppressor being the one to say, oh, this is a system we created and we should take more ownership over it or take ownership over it. And those who have their causes that are specific to their social identity, whether they be black, trans, whatever the case may be, then they can, they're like, whatever their causes will support that. But ultimately it is within the umbrella of this larger call of an- cause of anti-racism and dismantling of these white supremacist constructs and systems. And so like, I think there's sort of a thing of like, it's potentially a way of how you view it, but I think ultimately it sort of stems back to the same thing. It, this is sort of like even the framing of like, we have the stop Asian hate stuff right now, right? And so, or that stop Asian stuff, the stop Asian hate stuff, but like we have the, the whole stop Asian, Asian hate movement that's happening and it's just like Black Lives Matter movement. And what I've been seeing more and more pop up is not stop Asian hate or Black Lives Matter, but stop white terrorism. And the reason for that shift is for a long time, it's like, how do we protect these people? It's like, yes, we need protection. We need support, things like that. But in actuality, the thing we need protection and support from is the terrorism that has happened for centuries. And so how do we look at the root cause and say, how do we stop that versus stopping the effect of that cause, right? But that's sort of like how, how I think about it. And it's even the same with product and design and research. It's like, hey, we want to make products more equitable. Why are they inequitable? And how do we go back and retroactively assess previous products that were built and see how we can do this better? How do we create the systems and goals, equity center goals to make sure we do it moving forward? And how do we make sure we're always clear about what the root cause is? And it could be, hey, we're moving too fast. We didn't have the right team. We didn't have the right research participants. We didn't have something and let's be clear on what that was and then figure out either one do we need to mitigate it moving forward do we need to completely change what we have previously done or whatever the case may be it's sort of the same thing of like you have to get to the root of it and say how do we focus on that thing versus the effect which is oh these like facebook's perspective or in facebook's world is like you know for a long time there were folks who were saying that people were disproportionately being disciplined on the platform who were non-white because they were saying things that were for quote unquote violent against white folks. And so like if you say a white cracker, that was seen as a problem. You could be a banned for it. But if you said something like Michelle Obama is a monkey, 
then you wouldn't get banned for that, but that's a racist trope. The, that's the big part about it is like, when we looked at those, those discrepancies and we said, like, we need to figure out how to do this better, then Facebook had to go back and look at the algorithm and look at even the people who are making the algorithm to say, okay, clearly we have a problem in how we're looking at hate speech and we need to change this and look at it, take a different approach to it. So yeah, it's, it's sort of like, they could have said the symptom is, we just need to do this one thing when actuality, there's a bigger problem that we need to go deeper on. Sorry, that's a little bit of a ramble. I can go off on tangents all the time. No, this is this is really great. I mean, I am personally more along the lines of yourself where I can get a lot of sort of energy and enjoyment out of discussing this at like a really, really high level and even philosophically. But I like a lot where you where you were starting to kind of drill into some of the specifics at the tail end of that. And I kind of want to, I would ask you to go further on that because again, people who are listening to this are in the same field that we are. And they, I have to believe certainly if they've made it this far, they actually care <laughs> to try and do this better. So the question I would want to ask is like, can you share any more examples like that and stories like that of where, hey, we looked into this, we did some of the hard work and and here's ways that we worked to, to fix that. Because, you know, Facebook is a great example of that. I mean, there's there's just a lot going on at Facebook, despite mm-hmm. any of the pros or cons that come along with that. And right. so, you're, you know, your experience there even particularly, I think, is extremely useful, I think, for folks listening to take away and say, here's how I can start doing some of this hard work in my job tomorrow. Yeah, I will say, before I jump in there, I think that to the question of like, you know, what can I take with, with me to like even start doing this tomorrow? So Vivian Castillo is the founder of Humanity Center, amazing researcher. I would recommend she be on this podcast one day. Um, she's amazing. And she and I were having a great, really good conversation a few weeks back. And one thing she said to me that resonated immediately, I was like, oh, I have to write this. Is like, she asked the question, are you willing to suffer? Because disproportionately, Black, Latinx, and Indigenous folks, Indigenous folks have suffered and experienced organizational trauma and driving towards equitable cultures systems and products. But what we need is more folks who are willing to sort of suffer to get to the right thing. And by what I mean by suffer is like, are you just, do you just love the idea of building equitable products, of doing things more equitably, or are you actually willing to do the work? And doing the work means that you have to push against leadership. It means that you have to like extend timelines. It means that you have to like think less about what metric are you trying to drive and more about what is the human condition that you're trying to address? Like, these are the things you're sort of having to go through, which means that there are people, there are going to be people, especially leaders who will push back on you on this because the system says efficiency, effectiveness, and metrics. And so I think that's a really big question for folks is like, sure, I can give you a ton of really specific and advice, uh, specific examples and advice on how you can navigate systems and spaces, but are you willing to, act to actually step up and do it and push it because some folks have lost, lost their jobs trying to push this. Some folks have, if they haven't lost their jobs, they've had to leave their jobs because they found that the system or the people or the leadership or whatever were not in a place in which they can get where they needed to go. And so it's better for them to leave. Like quite honestly and transparently, that's why I left Microsoft because I found that no matter how much I tried to push on certain things, it just wouldn't go. And so when you think about like the inclusive product team, like it was great. And externally, it was like, oh, we have these great guides and so on and so forth. But internally, we use none of that shit. Like it didn't show up in my product work at all. And so it's like, it was a great marketing technique, but it didn't actually show up anywhere. And so I think that's, that's a question I push people on. And like, we can get into specifics around a bunch. Like I'll say one company that, and I give you know credit to Dantley Davis, and I honestly believe it's because 
Black male in leadership who is very vocal about diversity, equity, inclusion is actually pushing it through. The work that he's doing as uh, chief design officer at Twitter is like, if you look at the community work they just started uh, launching over the past few weeks, they're doing things like hosting listening sessions to get people's feedback on some of the features they're looking at. They're like asking folks questions, they're posting things out and they're creating a co-creative design process in which the community can actually tell them what they want and they can leverage that as a mechanism to make sure they're creating the right thing. Because how do you create a community product if community isn't involved? And I mean, honestly, this is the conversation we're having in communities at Facebook right now. It's like, how are we gonna continue to build community products if communities aren't involved in that process? And how do we do that more effectively? And so I think that's just something, and that's not just, I think, with community products, but in, in general, how are you going to build products for people that you have no idea who you're building for? Like, do people realize that, potentially, that screen readers were never actually intended for people living with disabilities? They were intended for a specific, a specific subset of folks, and they just so happen. Now, I, I wish I could remember this anecdote specifically, but there was a, there was a reason behind why screen readers exist but they were augmented over time to be focused on folks living with disabilities. And if not mistaken, like they, they basically pivoted to be specifically that because it was more, honestly, it was from a, a monetary perspective, like it was just more profitable. So there are things that like sort of exist that like are even for folks living with disabilities that wasn't actually created for them, but has been augmented for them because of profitability about it. Or like someone discovered, oh, other people can use this too, but it was never intended for that group of people. Yeah, that's really interesting stuff, as is my job on this show, is to try to kind of encapsulate a summary of, of a lot of what you just said there, you know, <laughs> and I have to apply my own kind of uh, experience to that. But a lot of what I'm taking away is like what you can do tomorrow to start working on this stuff is just have it top of mind. I mean, that's and be willing to be uncomfortable. It actually reminds me of some stuff. I, I was not super familiar with her work, but Brene Brown. And I actually mm-hmm. dug into a little bit more details of the thing. And one of the quotes that she had that was actually really interesting to me, it, was, it, it went along the lines of something uh, where she said, there is no courage without discomfort yeah. or yeah, something to that nature. And it's just kind of like what I'm taking from what you're saying is very much, you got to be willing to be uncomfortable. No, yeah. I, think everybody, I think everybody's personal tolerance or ability, capacity for that will probably be different. Yeah. But without it, I don't think that we can make any progress here. That's kind of what I'm taking from yeah. what you're saying. You know, yeah, something I, I, I would say all the time is progress is comfortable, change is uncomfortable. Because progress is like you're pushing up against boundaries a little bit. You're trying to stretch things out a little bit more piece by piece, right? So if you're within a square, it's okay, I'm going to push this a little bit and make this into a little bit of a, a rectangle. Maybe if I push these edges a bit, it'll turn into a trapezoid. But it's like expanding bit by bit. But actually what we need is change. And change is going to be uncomfortable. Change means that potentially you're going to have to jump into the water a little bit and get your feet wetter, like jump in full force. Demarosa Rodriguez, she is the head of community trust and safety at Facebook. She was previously the, uh, the head and like founder of the equity engineering team at Google. And she would say this a lot around like, you have fast, you have comfort and you have, I think I forgot what the third one was, was like fat, like do you, if you want it fast, it's going to be uncomfortable. And if you want, or I think it, I think it was like, potentially as money or something like that, or people like resources. So if you want it fast with as little resources as possible, then it's going to be really uncomfortable. If you want it comfortable and you want it fast, it's going to take a lot of resources. If you want it comfortable with as little resources as possible, as possible, it's going to be really slow. Right. And so you have to sort of like figure out what is, what are you willing to sacrifice? And to me, it's like, 
most likely speed is the one to sacrifice. It is, these are again, systems that go really far. And like for a lot of people, especially leaders, is having to look at their career and saying, where did I participate or benefit from this system? How do I navigate how I address that? And it's not to say like all of a sudden, all of your successes are have disappeared and no, you no longer, like all these things no longer matter. But it's to say like, now that you're aware, how can you leverage your power? How can you leverage your influence to activate and to make these changes? Yeah, that's huge. Love it. Absolutely love it. I am certain that I could talk with you for probably several more hours about this. <laughs> but <laughs> I have to be respectful of your time. And I see that that's running out, unfortunately. Here's the thing, though. I ask every guest this when we kind of wrap up. I, I say, you know, if I got struck with amnesia tomorrow and couldn't remember what we talked about and somebody came to you and said, well, what was that? What was the podcast about? What was, what was that conversation all about? How would you summarize that for them? Man, I, just, I went 17 different directions. This is a hard one. I think that if I, if I really had to summarize it all, it's that building equitable products, processes, and systems is a painstaking process that has to address decades, if not centuries, of inequities and systems built to, to operate exactly as they do today. So be willing to be patient, be uncomfortable, but also actionable. Like patience doesn't mean inaction. It just means that it won't happen tomorrow, but it still must happen. And so we have to be able to take action and continue to take action and just have the wherewithal to do it or the tenacity, I should say. Very well said. I love that. Awesome. Like I said, I, I'm going to be processing and chewing on a lot of what you shared in our chat for a while. <laughs> and I, I know for sure that I could do this for several more hours, but uh, we do need to wrap it up. I'm curious though, is, uh, is there anything that you want to share with folks that we didn't get a chance to talk about or address in the chat so far? No, I think this is great. You know, I think like part two of Navigating Whiteness, the article should be out hopefully by, by the end of April. And then I'm working on releasing part three in May, that one will be directly to my medium versus through Facebook design, which all of them will be posted on my medium as well. You can just literally Google Timothy Bartlett and, and I'm always there on everything. But I think that one will be interesting because it's really around the ethics of design and how design is connected to behavioral science and how we can take some of those ethical frameworks and connect them into the work we do as a way to really think about like, how do we start to build more equitable products even from an ethics perspective before we even get into the actual work itself. Awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, the, like I said, the, the one talk that you gave is already out there. The one article you already wrote is already out there. We'll have links yeah. to those in the show notes. Folks will have them. I think by the time that this releases, you very well might have part two already out. We'll have a link to that too, if that's the case. Yeah. And I just got to say, Timothy, thank you again for taking the time. This is really awesome. I know the folks who listen to our show uh, will have taken a lot away from this. I certainly have. Awesome. Thank you. All right. We'll see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the research and insights tool that helps you analyze, search, and share all your research in one place. So you can go from data to insights to action faster and easier. Check out Aurelius for yourself with a 30-day trial by going to AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you would give us a review on iTunes to let others know what you think. You can catch all new episodes of the Aurelius podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts like iTunes, Spotify, and more. Stay up to date when new episodes come out by signing up for email updates on our website.